Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of trauma recovery and being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world. In today's episode, we're going to explore how various forms of neurodivergence differ and overlap based on lived experiences. I am Autumn, the older sister, and so for my fact of the day, I want to share a couple things about my neurodivergence, and I am autistic. One of those is the thing that most negatively affects me throughout the day, and that is my hypersensitivity. It is a constant, ongoing struggle for me to not be sensorily overloaded by everything. Now, on the positive side, though, I would say one of the most positive results of my neurodivergence is efficiency. I am probably way way, way (laughs) too efficient, like how you should do tasks and what order and how they would overlap and interact the best automatically happens for me. I really wish I could get some of that efficiency from you because that is definitely not one of my strong points. Uh, I am Ivy, the younger sister, and my neurodivergence, well, one of my types of neurodivergence is ADHD. Tying into Autumn's positive is my negative, which is that I have a real difficult time with concentration. I have a hard time stringing words together into sentences, hard time following conversations, a hard time remembering what I was doing when I walked into a room, sometimes forgetting what I was doing halfway through the task that I was doing. And I spend a lot of time also just staring at the wall or staring off into space because my brain overloads and maxes out and I, it, it needs routine breaks, I guess. But of course... There is a silver lining. It's not all negative. One of the positive things that comes with my ADHD is that I feel anyway that I am more open-minded as a result of having the ADHD because since my brain wants to venture off into a million different directions at once anyway, it's relatively easy for me to consider the possibilities of multiple ideas existing simultaneously. Like I'm less likely than a lot of other people, I feel like, to hold steadfast to one particular thought or one particular version of reality or one particular belief system because I'm able to I, I'm able to see simultaneously how all of them could be right and all of them could be wrong in the same at the same time. I guess there's a little bit of jealousy there too from my end, because I think one of the things that goes hand in hand with that idea of being more open-minded and holding multiple ideas at the same time is something else I've seen you do is being able to hold, I guess, multiple versions of reality, multiple what ifs at the same time. And that's something that's very difficult for me because I do have a lot of that rigid thinking. And so I am very stuck in, but this is how it is but it's 2 p.m. and we do this at 2 p.m. And I just get stuck on this little rigid autistic loop sometimes. And I see you where you're able to go like, but it's 2 p.m. We could not do that. We could go fishing. We could play with the cat. Like we could do anything. 2 p.m. is meaningless. And like you can hold all of these different perspectives of what 2 p.m. means and the potential it holds. And I'm just like, no, we said at 2 p.m. we go to the grocery store and I just get stuck there. I mean, when you spend as much time in my internal version of outer space as I do, and as I think a lot of people with ADHD do, it's very easy to see that reality is pretty subjective, or at least that's my perception of it. I don't know if other people with ADHD have that same kind of 
perception of things. But to me, I'm, I'm always kind of, I don't know, outside of my body in another world on another plane of existence. And so to me, a lot of things are meaningless. Everything is ambiguous and amorphous to me. There are definitely good things about that, but it can also be somewhat frustrating because while it's fun floating around in outer space or inner space, I guess, it also stops you a lot of times from being present in the moment and understanding anything about what the fuck is going on at any given moment. I could I could definitely see that. So that is what today's episode is all about. It's how our different neurodivergences affect us and how they are different from one another, but how they can also be similar to one another. Now, as you've heard already, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know, Ivy is ADHD and I am autistic. And her and I both have a whole other bunch of alphabet letters we could throw in from our diagnostic history. But to make this simple, we're going to be focusing on those two diagnostic categories. We're going to be looking at how my autism affects my daily life, and we're going to be looking at how Ivy's ADHD affects her daily life. And now to make this also a little bit more interesting, we're going to throw in a little twist, and we're going to see how the other person assumes those neurodivergences will impact their lives as well. So I'm going to make assumptions about what I think Ivy's ADHD does to her daily life and her daily situations. And Ivy gets to make those same assumptions about me. All right, before we jump in, we're just going to give you a quick disclaimer here at the top that this episode is intended to be lighthearted and joking. This is going to be very conversational. It's going to be a little bit of a thought experiment even between us to see if our perceptions of each other are correct and how we kind of live with our neurodivergence. And yes, we will be exploring some stereotypes and stereotypes can be annoying, but they do also sometimes exist for a reason. And we are only going to be talking about these two different types of neurodivergence today and how how they personally manifest in us and our daily lives. We do understand both of these forms of neurodivergence are on a spectrum and is going to manifest a little bit differently between different people. So this is our personal experiences and we're going to be trying to highlight the difference and similarities between these two different types of neurodivergence. Because honestly, with a lot of types of neurodivergence, while there are things that are drastically different, we also do share a lot of overlap. So we're kind of interested to see how much overlap there is and how many differences there are between us. We're hoping that you guys find some things that you can relate to in here and maybe try some of your own thought experiments in your own life with the people that you know. And let's see how many things we have in common, how many things are different and kind of see how we perceive each other. I think mostly it's going to be positive. I mean. I perceive my sister pretty positively, though I will say there are a few minor annoyances that crop up between the grinding of our gears of ADHD and autism. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and jump in today. And so the very first scenario we're going to be talking about is morning routine. You know, you get up, you have to get ready, you have to go to work. So I'm going to start out by uh, offering my assumption of what Ivy's morning routine looks like. And I'm guessing that Ivy probably sets her alarm anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes before she has to get out of bed. And then she hits the snooze button repeatedly. And then she still ends up getting up probably anywhere between five to 15 minutes later than intended. Once she gets out of bed, I'm gonna assume extremely slow starter. Bathroom is probably the first. I feel like that's more of like a, I don't know, just a human stereotype. Doesn't everybody go pee very first thing in the morning? From there, I'm gonna say a shower to help herself wake up. 
I'm going to then say toothbrushing, hygiene sort of stuff, getting dressed, then maybe some makeup, and then we would move to the kitchen. There, there would be preparation of, I'm going to say something liquid. I feel like Ivy doesn't eat a lot in the morning. So I'm going to say some sort of smoothie, and then she takes like a shit ton of supplements, and then she walks out the door wonders if she forgot something or did forget something goes back to get the thing she forgot and then leaves that's that's what i think your morning routine looks like ivy what you described is very similar to what my morning routine used to look like earlier on in my journey not so much what it looks like now because i have found workarounds to try to be slightly more efficient uh, and and kind of ahead of the game with my issues. So I do not do the multiple snooze button thing anymore. Instead, what I do, because I know that I am a slow starter, so you are right about that, it will take me an absurd amount of time to get ready for reasons I still have never been able to understand. So I actually set my alarm for two hours and 15 minutes before I have to leave. And that first 15 minutes is spent in the bathroom generally. Sometimes I'll just lay there and stare at the ceiling, but it's too tempting to just stay in bed. So I usually force myself out of bed as soon as my alarm goes off. Then I go into the bathroom and I just sit on the toilet for like 15 minutes and scroll through things on my phone, trying to get my brain to work well enough that I can get my shit together. I never take showers in the morning for the most part. I always take my shower right before I go to bed so I can crawl into the sheets clean. I don't like taking showers in the morning. It just feels like a time suck. Makeup, I don't really do a whole lot of makeup anymore, but I do have an entire regimen of skincare stuff that I do. And then, yes, I do fluids of some kind in the morning. Lately, I've been doing more than ever, but some form of caffeine and then some form of just straight up hydration. I usually actually leave the house almost on time. Maybe I'm pushing it a little bit. What I do is I pull up on Google Maps where I'm supposed to be going. So I have this absurdly long list of all of the places that I normally go. So I'll pull up on Google Maps where I'm supposed to be headed that day to see exactly how long it's supposed to take to get me there and what the traffic is like. And then I watch the time and see what the estimate is for when I'm supposed to get there. And, and I, oh, and I don't take my supplements in the morning for the, for the most part. I have started taking supplements in the morning, but only the ones for my ADHD. All the rest of my supplements I take at night. Yeah, the, I think that covers all the bases of everything that you said. That was a real struggle for me to remember all of that. <laughs> so I feel like I got some of that right. So the snoozing thing, good for you, by the way, because that's hard just for adults anyway to get out of bed when the alarm goes off. And do you, do you actually not eat anything solid in the morning? Was I right about that? Oh, wait, I, okay. So I didn't remember everything you said because I forgot the food. How do I forget the food? I'm like the most food motivated person in the world. No, I actually do eat in the morning. I have to, because if I don't, my anxiety will get really bad. And then it's even harder for me to concentrate. And I struggle more in traffic as well. So no, I have to eat in the morning, even if I don't feel like it, even if I'm not hungry, I force myself to eat in the morning, like an actual breakfast too, not just a piece of toast on the go. I have to have like eggs and bacon and toast. I have to have a real meal first thing in the morning or I'm not functional very much at all. 
Wow. I mean, overall, that seems like a really good functional morning routine. I feel like I kind of lowballed you, like expected you to be less functional in the morning than you are. So I, I apologize for that, Ivy. No, that's okay. I think you are operating on the basis of how you knew me to be, you know, when I was in my 20s, which looks different because I tried my best to learn from all of those things and be a little bit more on top of things now that I'm in my 30s. And, you know, you have to you have to be a responsible adult at some point, I guess. On that note, though, I find that kind of funny that you say that because part of my assumption was also based on my ADD boyfriend. Oh. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell him that you said that part. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now that I have apparently called out Jake without meaning to, <laughs> I guess we'll talk about what I assume Autumn's morning routine looks like. See, I anticipate that Autumn gets up as late as possible for how long it will take her to get out of the house because she really does love sleep and I expect that she is better at dragging herself out of bed and getting going than I am. I also kind of think her morning routine, even though she's not a morning person, I think it's probably still way more high energy than my morning routine is because I'm like a slug in the morning and because Autumn is very efficient and because she has like anxiety driving her as well, I suspect she's more on the go than I am. I figure after her her morning pee, because like she said, that's a very human thing. I think we all do that. She probably sees to her animals first, because I feel like her, her animals are like the center of her universe. So she probably sees to the animals first, make sure they have food, get to go to the bathroom. She interacts with them, gets them, I don't know, all excited for the day. And then she probably is poking at Jake a lot, trying to get him going at her at her speed. Uh, she probably has a very set way of how everything has to be done in the morning. And if it doesn't go as planned in that order, it probably throws her for a loop. It increases her anxiety. I do suspect that she leaves the house way before she needs to, just in case there's unexpected circumstances on the way to wherever it is that she's going. She probably leaves with enough time that if nothing goes wrong and the roads are clear and everything is good, she probably arrives at least a half hour early. And she's probably still nervous that she's going to be late. I feel so called out by every last bit of that. I just want, I just want to put that out there. So yes, that is so very, very accurate. Uh, but yeah, I get up, I go pee, I let the dogs out, and then I go in and get dressed. And then I bring the dogs in and I start my egg or my hash browns and then I feed the dogs and then I put my eggs in with the hash browns and then I brush my teeth and then I eat my food and then I'm ready to go. And if Jake actually has to go to work with me that day, like we're in the same car and we have to get up, I am poking him like the whole time. I'm all like, all right, babe, do you, do you know what time it is? Is it, It's time to get up. Do you think you're going to be ready? Do you think you're going to be ready? Do you think you're going to be ready? Because... I get up at 7.45 so I can leave the house by 8.30 and I usually leave the house by 8.10 and I usually get to work by, by 8.25 and that's on time. And so when I have to have Jake with me, I'm yeah very stressed out because he's not dressed yet and he doesn't have on shoes and he's still trying to eat his food. And I'm just like, dude, dude. So yeah, very, very called out by that. <laughs> I don't know if it's because 
like like I was saying with your assumptions about my morning routine, I think partially that was based on how I used to be. So I don't know if you are just this have just stayed the same in that sense, just like how you operate all these years, or if I have just got a slightly better grasp on what autumn today is like. I don't know, but I am pleasantly surprised that I was actually pretty correct about how your morning routine goes. Yeah, I I think I have not really changed. I think I this routine is actually very similar to the one I remember having at 14 or 15 years old. And it is optimized to get me as much sleep as I possibly can without my anxiety freaking me out that I'm going to be late. And that's why everything has to go in order, which why when I have to go with Jake, it's problematic because he does need like the scrolling time on the phone and all of this but he doesn't accommodate for that in the routine. And so then we end up at work on time, which is like horrifying to me that we're just like on time. That that seems like horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of my assumptions about you as well are kind of based on how grandma used to operate because you and grandma are very similar in a lot of ways. And grandma's schedule, her routines were like clockwork everything went exactly to plan and everything was on schedule and she seemed to do everything in the exact same order every single day. Grandma is the was like the most consistent person I've ever known. She had like the same haircut since she was a child. Like it, it just never changed. I feel like in a lot of ways you are very much like grandma. <laughs> I mean that in a good way, by the way. I don't mean that in a negative way. <laughs> Oh, I so take that as a compliment because that is what I am reaching for. And in all honesty, like I pride myself on my consistency and routine because I've actually adopted an animal here or there in my adult life. And they've been very insecure because they came from an environment where they didn't know when they were going to get fed or how long somebody was going to be away or whatnot. And usually within about three to six months, that it's typically a dog. That dog is secure as fuck. Because I am spot on with my <laughs> expectations of routine. And they're like, oh, no, it's like a, I'm getting fed right now. This is when I get fed. It's within a two-minute time span. I don't need to worry about that. And I'm like, yes, my routine has fixed this animal. They no longer feel insecure. Oh, God, I hope I never have to watch your animals for you. Because <laughs> it's everything is like a two, three-hour window for me. All right. So next next scenario we're going to go about is going grocery shopping. And okay, so this is going to be pretty general, but I feel like Ivy goes grocery shopping primarily at one store. So she's not going to be one of those person that goes all over. And I imagine her like a pinball just bouncing all over. I'm going to guess that she has like a list or a basic idea of what she needs so that she gets pretty much everything at this point and doesn't forget anything though. All right, I actually go to multiple stores. Partially because I just love grocery shopping and I love food. So I try to get as many opportunities to see food and be around food as possible. <laughs> we, we do a Costco run and then we usually do Whole Foods or Sprouts or something along those lines. And then we usually end up going to an Asian market. If I was not with somebody who was Chinese, I probably wouldn't go to the Asian market as often. But since we eat a lot of Chinese style meals, we end up going to three stores almost every time. I'm sort of like a pinball, but like a really slow one. I tend to go down every single aisle, which drives Calvin insane because he's like, we don't need anything down that aisle. And I'm like, yeah, but I just want to look. <laughs> so I go down every single aisle and I kind of meander and I get distracted by things. I do have a list 
And I do keep it open on my phone as I'm shopping. But a lot of times what happens is that because I don't organize my list based on where things are at in the store, I see what's on my list next. And I'm like, eggs, I'm going to go get eggs. So I go to get the eggs. And then I'm like, oh, we need bread. That's on the other side of the store. Okay, I'm going to go over and get the bread. So I just meander. I tend to end up going down every single aisle. I end up going back and forth from one side of the store to the other because I don't organize my list by where the food is going to be in the store. It ends up taking way too much time. I know I drive Calvin absolutely insane when we go shopping because he just wants to get in and get out. He's like, we have the list. There's things that we need to get. Let's get the things. Let's get out of here. And I'm like, but I want to look just in case. And I do a lot of backtracking too, where I'm like, I think I saw it like I, cause I was looking at this thing and it looked really good, but I couldn't decide if I wanted to spend the money on it, but it is on sale. So I'm going to go back and get it. So I was, I was pretty accurate. It's just a very slow pinball. I figured you meandered. I figured there was a lot of, a lot of meandering there. So I feel, I feel that was pretty accurate overall, except for the multiple stores. I'm surprised about the multiple stores simply because I assumed your hatred of traffic would encourage you to stay to one store only. But I could see how your love of food and wanting to see it would outweigh the hatred of traffic. I, I really love food. I don't think it can be underestimated how much I love food. And sometimes we even end up going to a fourth place because if I want to go to the bakery, then that's a whole different thing. Because there's one particular bakery that we really, really like. And I'm not just going to get baked goods from the store. Or if I do, I'm going to get the baked goods from the store and then I'm still going to go to the bakery because I like their cake better. And I will say like the one thing that you might not expect from my grocery shopping is that I hate it when Calvin bags things because that's the one thing where I do feel like I'm pretty, I don't know if it's efficient or if it's just really organized. I like to fit as many things into that space as possible. And I like to Tetris that shit in there. And Calvin just throws things haphazardly in the bag or the box and it drives me insane. So you might not expect that. I tend to micromanage the bagging or boxing or I'll let him do it when we're in the store. But then when we get out to the car, before we put it in the car, I move things around in the bags before I let him put it in the car. <laughs> I imagine grocery shopping with you is much like grocery shopping with grandma, where you have a very specific list. You know exactly where those things are at in the store. You probably have the things on your list organized by where it's at in the store, or, or at least you just have enough memory of everything that's on your list and the geography of the store, I guess, that you can make your way through efficiently. And I think you probably walk really fast everywhere you are more than likely distracted by good sales on things though but only distracted for a moment and you probably make decisions very quickly about whether or not to get that thing whether you can afford it whether it's worth getting i think you make those decisions quickly but i do think you might get distracted by sales on things if they're really good and then you probably talk to jake or somebody else about the really good deal that you got on this thing <laughs> I'm beginning to think that you think I'm grandma, and I'm not sure whether I should be flattered or, or uh, mildly insulted. You should be flattered. You should definitely be flattered. I, I I see grandma, like I remember grandma as just being a a beacon of efficiency and just very uh, routine oriented and very frugal and very smart. I see you as, as being very similar to grandma. Yes, I do. But you should take that as a compliment. All right. I, I will. Yes, I am very organized. My list is not organized. I wish I could get the level of energy necessary to do that. 
but I do have a very good memory of the geography of the store, which is why I get absolutely irately pissed off if a store like a Walmart does a reset and something's not in the right location. I will, I'll almost lose my shit over that. Stop resetting grocery stores, bitches. Stop it. But yeah, so I go up and down every aisle, though, because I'm always hopeful. I only ever buy like the same 23 products because that's pretty much all I can eat and all my small town grocery store carries. But I always hopeful there'll be something else. And I do get excited about stales because every now and again, it's like, oh, we use beans. They're like five for five. We'll save like $1.49. We need to get five cans of beans. Oh, I'll get six because then we'll have. Yes. And then I grab six cans of beans and I put them in there. And then when Jake catches back up to me, because he usually got lost somewhere distracted by something, I'm like, look, five for five, $1.49 off babe that's like times five that's like lots of the money's off look how much money i saved us and he's like that's nice and then he puts like whatever baked good he found in the cart and then i love grocery shopping with jake because if i do miss something he's my he's my my guy to go back so that way i don't feel inefficient because i'm sending him back and i don't have to go backwards but i do allow myself one backwards so i go through the store up and down every aisle and then i go back one time and that's allowable. But yeah, and like you though, very, very picky about how I bag stuff. I don't Tetris it, but it's about how I'm going to unload it at home. So all of my cold stuff needs to be together and my canned stuff needs to be together and my produce stuff needs to be together. And that's also how it needs to go up onto the conveyor belt. So Jake does not even bother putting things on the conveyor belt anymore because I will, I will correct it while he's putting because there's the right way to put things on the conveyor belt at the grocery store the store resets where they've reorganized everything that also throws me for a loop but not in the same way that it does you like i don't get angry about it but if i walk into the store and things are suddenly organized differently i am now going to stand there at the entrance of the store for like 30 seconds to a minute and just kind of slowly look around and try to reorient myself with my environment even though it shouldn't matter because i'm going to meander around the store anyway i'm going to go down every aisle i will find the thing that i need but it does throw me for a loop and then with the the bagging things like your logic for bagging things is, is very organized and regimented and it makes a whole lot of sense. My way of organizing things serves no practical purpose whatsoever. I just like it to look as aesthetically pleasing as possible. It needs to fit just right. I, I suppose that is a purpose, like the aesthetic purpose, but I don't think that would ever occur to me. <laughs> All right, so let's look at our next scenario. And that is what a self-care routine looks like all of us should hopefully be doing self-care on a regular basis i'm trying to think what what did ivy's self-care routine look like i don't feel like it's routine honestly i feel like it is a lot of different things that are not necessarily done on a consistent like every tuesday at four basis but i imagine there's a lot of supplements which would be timed there's probably a lot of attempts to maintain a routine or a familiar environment because I know that's helpful for her. I'm going to say there's some downtime, the scrolling, the webtoons, uh, just mindless stuff that's going to help you kind of calm down and get some of that dopamine motivation you need. Food is a definite part of your self-care routine. I cannot forget that. I'm guessing some relational stuff, like some cuddling or some at least some together time, maybe movies or possibly at least being in the same arena, even if you're doing different activities. And then I would say another important part of the self-care routine 
is also alone time, finding time to be alone. Oh, and cleaning, cleaning and organizing and making things aesthetically pretty, because I think you like to make things aesthetically pretty based on what we've said today. So your assumptions about my self-care routine is interesting to me because some of the things that you listed as self-care are not things that I thought of as being self-care. I just thought of them as being life, <laughs> I guess. I think right off the bat here, we have different definitions of what self-care looks like because all of the things that you said, yes, would fit under the category of self-care. I did not think of most of those things at all when I was thinking about self-care because I was defining self-care differently. I feel like self-care to me, in terms of my definition, is almost more things that I enjoy that maybe aren't absolutely necessary, but that I make time for. So I guess the webtoons might fit in there somewhat. The supplements are an important part of keeping me functional, but I didn't really think of those things as self-care because I was defining self-care under things that are somewhat like enjoyable little treat type things that I give myself. So I guess the webtoons fit, food definitely fits. What I think of is in terms of my self-care is, I guess it goes along the lines of making things aesthetically pleasing. Not so much the cleaning aspect as far as being self-care. That's another one of those things that I just consider to be life that is necessary for me in order to be functional. But as far as things that I actually do to treat myself or my definition of self-care, a lot of it is doing things that I feel make me more aesthetically pleasing in my own perception. So to me, going to the gym is self-care. Is it absolutely necessary for me to go lift weights? No, I could find other physical activities to do to help me keep in shape. But I enjoy going to the gym. I like the boost that I get from that in terms of my confidence. I like the way that it that I look as a result of my workouts. I like how much stronger I feel. That's a self-care thing to me. Doing skincare, that's a self-care thing to me. Is it absolutely necessary? No, it is not. And it actually takes up a decent chunk of my time. But I I like doing it because it's like a treat to me. Reading is another self-care thing to me, which I guess kind of goes with the webtoon stuff. Going out into nature is kind of a self-care thing to me. It's not absolutely necessary, but I really, really like it. And I would not be as happy without doing it. So I think our definitions of self-care are, are different. You were thinking of self-care in a very literal sense of, I am taking care of myself. And I was thinking of self-care as like, these are the things that I do beyond just the basics of taking care of myself. Yes. Yes, I was. Like, I was like, this is how you care for yourself. But at the same point, like, I would also consider those things that you said as self-care, like going into nature, because I feel like if you don't go into nature, it's detrimental to your mental health. So that's a necessity, even though you say it's like, well, you don't have to. Or going to the gym. When you fail to go to the gym for a few days or a few weeks, because I know that happened during COVID where you couldn't get out there, detrimental to your mental health. And so in my mind, I'm like, that's a necessity. I just didn't think to, <laughs> to say it. I guess... In my mind, like all self-care routines are a necessity. Like even the little, the pretty cakes you talk about that you get from the bakery, that is also a necessity. A pretty cake is a necessity if it gives you the absolute happy boost needed to get you through to the end of the week or get you looking forward to the next week. So yeah, I, I do think I interpret self-care as necessary. <laughs> <laughs> like necessity things not superfluous but like no you have to do this or you'll die or be in a bad mood which i mean is almost as bad 
Now, to be fair, self-care it does cover all of those things. It, it is the things that you do to you know, make sure that you're still alive, <laughs> the necessary things, and it is also the treat things. It was just interesting to me because I felt like we were thinking about it in completely different terms. All the things that you were listing were the things that are like, yes, I do that as a function. <laughs> but there are things that I have to do in order to be functional and to be in a good mood. So yeah, I, I guess it does all kind of tie in together. It's very, it, it's a very uh, amorphous kind of thing, this self-care business. All right. Yeah. It is. So now I'm kind of curious, like, what do you perceive my self-care are based on your definition of what self-care is? It's hard for me to put my own logic back in there because I, did, I didn't really have anything lined up first. I wish I, on this point at least, I wish I had made some notes so that I could have, you know, had, the, this was the original thought that I had and then it was morphed by the way that Autumn responded to me. I feel like a lot of your self-care has to do with surprisingly relational things. Even though you don't have a very big social circle, I feel like self-care for you does include relational things like cuddling with Jake and your time with the animals, things like that. I feel like that's such an important, an important thing for you in order for you to feel like safe and nurtured and loved and like those happy, feel good things. Food is a definite one. I now, uh, thinking about how you made assumptions about me, I kind of want to say that being on time is a self-care thing for you. <laughs> because if you're not on time, you'll be super anxious. And supplements, I know you mentioned that one for, for me, and now I definitely am going to say it for you, because that seems to fit under the category of self-care by your standards. Probably reading, too, like your your cozy mysteries, your your cat who books, that kind of stuff. Those are the ones that are coming to mind for me at the moment. Yeah, I, I would say those are all pretty accurate. I, I didn't think about the relational stuff as self-care, but I do think you're right. Like, I know this sounds makes me sound extremely egocentric and selfish, but I take care of others to take care of myself because I do loop so strongly with others and I am so used to having to meet other people's needs that when other people need things around me or are upset around me, it really escalates me. And so I constantly meet everybody's needs that's in my intimate environment so that I can feel okay. And yes, I do love them, but that's why they're allowed in my intimate environment in my, in my mind, because otherwise I'm not dealing with you on a daily basis, because if I deal with you on a daily basis, I have to meet all your needs. And that's very exhausting. So... Honestly, for me, I would say my entire life is a self-care routine. It, it really is. Like living off-grid, uh, the way my routines are set up, everything I do is, in my mind, self-care. It's a way to make sure that I can continue functioning. And part of that for me is kind of sad, though, because there are things that I would like to do that I would like to have energy for like creative projects or crafts or even to write more uh, like a book I have so many ideas for different novels and I don't have the energy for it and I feel like all of my energy is consumed with self-care so that I can do the basic functioning to survive life so I mean I guess it's good because I am caring for myself but I also get tired of it all the time that I have to do so much so that I can function. And then I don't have energy left for anything else. 
You know where I think we're both getting kind of hung up here in terms of our definition of self-care is I think we're we're failing to draw a clear line between self-care and self-maintenance because personally, I feel like those things are different. A lot of those things that you were talking about and that I kind of mentioned too that are necessary for our function, I don't know how much of that is self-care by the the pop culture standards because a lot of the pop culture standards for self-care is like doing nice things for yourself and that really is going above and beyond what is just basic self-maintenance but for both of us in part because of our neurodivergence or probably entirely because of our neurodivergence not just autism and adhd but like the ptsd or my bipolar those sorts of things because of our neurodivergence so much more of our energy does get sucked into self-maintenance. And I think it starts to blur the line of self-care because it does take so much of our time. Because I struggle with a lot of the same things too, where there's so many things I would like to do, but I spend so much time in self-maintenance that I don't really have the luxury of true self-care. Because some of the things that I'm counting as self-care is my skincare routine, shaving my legs like those are things that i'm like oh this is self-care i'm treating myself no these are self-maintenance things and i'm counting it as self-care and i think maybe both of us are doing that and this really highlights how i think neurodivergence can suck up so much of your time in just functioning and self-maintenance that you lose that concept of being able to go above and beyond for yourself and do anything outside of that i think that is a really good point and any of you out there listening chime in on your thoughts like if you are neurodivergent do you feel the same like are you so spending so much of your time and your energy and your resources on maintaining on just that self-maintenance so that you can continue functioning that you don't have time for these superfluous things because as, as ivy's saying you know going above and beyond and i'm trying to even think what that might be and i'm like well once every two to three months jake and i will you know save up money and we'll eat out or go to a movie <laughs> Like, that's like, that is the only thing I can think of. Sometimes I go to the Dollar Tree and I buy myself a silly pen that I don't need. I, I feel kind of saddened now that maybe I'm not taking care of myself. I honestly, I'm a little saddened by this too, because it really, I did not realize before how much of my own perception of self-care was really just wrapped up in self-maintenance. And it's obvious something that we're both having issues with. Obviously, something more for us to work on. <laughs> but like a good thing to work on when I can find the energy to do it, if I can manage to get all the things that have to get done done in order to make time for the things I actually want to do with self-care once I figure out what those are. You know, okay, with this one, I'm throwing that back at society. This is something society needs to work on because most of my self-maintenance is done so that I can continue being in society so that I can afford to, you know, have a house and food. So if I didn't have to do all this shit to fit in with society and meet your expectations, I would have time for self-care. So you know what? This is not something I need to work on. Society, you need to get your act together and stop expecting so much from us neurodivergent people. Come on. How long have we been catering to your neurotypical needs? Step up here. Help us out, people. I agree. Fuck you, hustle culture. We don't need your shit. Unfortunately, we still have to make money so that we can afford so that we can afford to do our self-maintenance. But beyond that, fuck you, hustle culture. We don't need your shit except for the shit we do need of your shit. 
but yes, anyways. Um, all right. So the next, uh, the next scenario we're going to be talking about is when you have a free day. So you don't really have anything specific you have to do. You don't have to be at work. There's no errands. There's no appointments. There's nothing specific that you have to do. What are you going to do with it? Um, knowing Ivy, I bet you anything she's going to do something with it because I don't, she, she's got to be productive. I mean, you can call me out if I'm wrong on that, Ivy, but I'm pretty sure you're doing something. I don't think it's like, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy my day because I feel like that would make you feel really guilty if you weren't doing something. And so even though when you're like sitting there and enjoying it, like reading your webtoons, I imagine there's guilt and anxiety in the background about things you could be doing instead. If given full reign, you're going to flee the city. I, I, I'm just going to say that's a given. You're going to flee the city. You're going to get mud on the tires, go camping, get as far away from humans as you can, hopefully find some mushrooms and some really cool nature items. That's, that's what I'm going to go with for your free day. This is the one that you've been the most spot on for so far. I always have guilt and anxiety about the things that I probably should be doing that are not getting done and that are just piling up in the background. It's very difficult for me to actually have a free day because my free day ends up being eaten up by things that I feel need to get done. Or yes, I do escape into nature. So that's, that is definitely a given there. The other thing that happens, and this is something that I think a lot of people with ADHD can relate to is this sense of paralysis because you have a free day what am I going to do with that free day? And your mind starts thinking about all the things that you feel you need to do, but also all the things that you want to do. And you can't decide which of those things to do. And so for a huge chunk of the day, you sit around staring off into space or fidgeting or something like that, scrolling through your phone, trying to decide which of the really cool things you want to do with your free day and then the whole day goes by and you didn't do any of the things because you couldn't decide which of the things to do. Instead, you scrolled through Instagram for 12 hours or through TikTok for 12 hours because you were trying to give yourself time to decide what cool thing you wanted to do with your day. And then you feel ashamed and guilty because you did nothing you had a whole free day to do the things and you did nothing. <laughs> but if I can get my shit together enough to do something and make a decision, nature is definitely my go-to. I will run away to nature. That sounds so sad, the paralysis part. Like you have the whole day and then you spend it just like an in indecisiveness and then the day is gone. And that that breaks my heart a little. It really, like, I feel like you should get a bonus day for that or something. It is really frustrating because a lot of times when I actually have a free day and I tell myself, I am just going to take this day for myself to chill out, to relax, to do things that I want to do. A lot of times I have it in my mind, I will do that after I get the stuff done that I need to get done. And then the things that need to get done or that I think need to get done take so much time because I can't concentrate because I'm burnt out and I don't want to be doing them that it leaves me no time during the rest of, no time left to the day. And while I'm in the process of all of that stuff, trying to get the things done that need to get done and staring off into space, I am 
actively going through all the things that I want to do. It's like, oh, I would love to just have a movie day. Just crawl into bed with a blanket and watch movies or watch anime and eat popcorn. Oh, but you know what I would also like to do? I would really like to go for a walk or go for a hike. That sounds fun. I should do that. Oh, and I also would like to go to the grocery store and get myself a treat. Oh, I would also like to do this thing over there. Oh, that sounds fun over there. Oh, I would love to paint. I, I still have canvases. I still have paint. I haven't painted in forever. Oh, but I would also like to really crochet. And none of it gets done because I am so conscious of the fact that there are so many hours in the day and I only have so much energy and so much ability to concentrate and focus. So then I just ultimately end up doing nothing. Like that is one of the biggest frustrations for me with my ADHD is just paralysis. I get stuck in that state of paralysis way more frequently than I would like to admit. That's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I'll have to say that I do appreciate my autism for like the routine and the anxiety, I guess, motivation that it gives me because I can't stay paralyzed for the most part. <laughs> I have to be, unless I'm burnt out. Unless I'm totally burnt out, like my mind is automatically like, oh, you want to do those things? Okay, we're going to spend two hours watching this particular anime film. Then we're going to get ready to go to hike and we're going to pack our canvas and our crochet stuff. On the way to the hike, we're going to stop by the grocery store to get our little treat. We're going to go to the hike. We're going to do a little bit, eat the snack, stop, paint a little while. And then if I get bored with that, I'll crochet. Like that's what my mind was doing when you were laying out all these things. I'm like, we can do all that today. We've got this. <laughs> so that's what my mind did. And I would love it if I could actually do that. But no, even though I know that's an option, it never ends up happening that way. Instead, I just sit there stuck in paralysis all day. But, you know, struggles. Anyway. All right. So how do I think you use a free day? I think you use a free day by sleeping as long as you fucking want, eating, spending time with your dogs, and maybe reading. Uh, the sleeping is so funny because, yes, every free day I have, I sleep in. And even if it's like unbearably hot and the sun's shining in and it's like nine, I'm still like, no, I am going to be in bed till 10 and I will make myself stay in bed even if I'm not sleeping till 10 because I like the concept of sleep so much. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do read a lot. I do spend time with the dogs, but I do also have a drive to be productive. I am aware of all the things that need to get done. But one of the things I love about a free day is I feel like if I'm like, okay, nothing has to get done today. I feel so weightless with that and so overjoyed with that, that I then actually get really productive. And so the house gets cleaned and I get a shed built and I get wood split because I didn't have to do any of it. And because I didn't have to do any of it, it made all of these tasks super enjoyable. I enjoyed picking up the house. It was fun. I enjoyed going out and cutting out wood. As soon as I don't have to do anything, I will start doing things because it feels so nice to not have to do them, which is really stupid. And yeah, so I don't really actually spend a lot of time not doing things. And I've actually found that I can't spend a lot of time not doing things because if I actually want to spend a day watching television or reading a book or laying in bed, I end up getting aches and pains and headaches from it, which is so sad. So yeah, I end up being productive, but happily so because I didn't have to be. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody out there. 
I think that makes sense because a lot of things really do come down to perception and there's a huge difference between doing something casually at will and feeling like you are obligated to do that thing in a timely manner. There is a huge difference there. I think most people would be able to relate to that. I can also see where you're coming from with that need to be productive because that is, I mean, and you mentioned it in your assumptions about me needing to do something. Even when I'm stuck in that paralysis, I am generally still moving. It's very hard for me to just sit or lay in bed. I have to be moving. A lot of times what ends up happening while I'm in that paralysis state is I am going around mindlessly cleaning things. It just takes forever because I keep getting distracted. I keep forgetting what I'm doing because I don't want to be doing those things. I want to be doing something for myself that I enjoy, but those things have to wait until I'm done doing the things that need to get done and until I can figure out what I want to do. But I'm moving the entire time because like Autumn, I hurt when I don't move. Uh, the human body was designed to move. Being sedentary is painful for most people. <laughs> that makes me feel better about myself. And, you know, maybe it's also like partially my anxiety too, though, because I have found the only thing I can do sedentary is read. Like watching TV or movies is almost impossible for me on my own. Like I have to have a TV buddy. If Jake is there, I will watch a movie. Without Jake, I I'm probably never going to watch that movie ever. Like, it is so sad because I see all these movies. And I'm like, oh, I would love to watch that. It'd be so cool. It's such a good movie. And I'm like, oh, but Jake doesn't want to watch it. So I'm never going to see it <laughs> because I can't sit still for like an hour and a half and just look at the screen. And then if I'm on my phone, I can't pay attention to what's on the screen. And then it's like too much stimuli and I get overwhelmed. Yeah, I can't even watch TV in my free time for the most part, unless I have a TV buddy. I also cannot watch TV or watch movies in my free time because I can't sit still either. You pretty much have to sit on top of me to keep me from moving. Uh, Calvin gets annoyed because he just wants to cuddle and I'm doing things. And eventually he'll just pull me down onto the couch with him and wrap his arms around me. And then I can't move. And then I have to be there. And I, I like, I enjoy it. It's not like he's forcing things on me, but if left to my own devices, I will not just sit. And if I am sitting I will not be able to pay attention to the TV. I'm also thinking about other things. I'm doing something else on my phone. I am always multitasking. It's very hard for me to actually just concentrate on any one thing. All right. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the next scenario. Uh, okay. This is going to dinner at someone's house. Obviously, you know them well enough to have been invited. So they're a friend, but probably not like super intimate because you're like, you're going to dinner. You're not just hanging out. You or me, Ivy, I think this is going to be so hella awkward. Like our social anxiety is going to step up so, so bad with this one. Okay, so first off, if you can avoid this, you're going to avoid this. That's just, that's all there is to it. You're going to find a way to get out of it. If there's absolutely no way to get out of this, this means it's probably a relational obligation. So like it's, I don't know, parents of a boyfriend or something like that. It's going to be awkward. You're probably going to be very quiet. You're going to seem very shy. You detest having people watch you eat. So that's going to be horrifying to you. So you're probably going to be watching them and waiting for like an up pick in conversation or their interaction so that you can eat enough to look like you appreciate the food. Because I think also you're going to not want to offend anybody and so you're going to have to try and eat enough to make it look like like oh this is really good. And 
you're probably going to try and get away as soon as possible to maybe even have something set up. So you'd be like, oh, yeah, we have another thing we have to go to so that you can leave. That's what I'm thinking. You are very much on point with all of that. The only thing that you missed is I will at some point, because I'm so nervous and anxious, do something to make a jackass of myself that I will remember for the rest of my life and think back on at random moments just to denigrate myself, I guess. Yes, I do avoid going to dinner, if at all possible, mostly because I do still have a lot of issues around eating near other people because I got bullied a lot when I was a kid for being fat and people would basically act like I didn't deserve to eat because I was fat as a kid. So I have a lot of issues with that. And then I had disordered eating for a lot of years. So I just have this really complicated relationship with food and I don't like to eat in front of other people. It takes a long time for me to be comfortable eating in front of other people. And yes, I only go to dinner if it is a relational obligation. Most of the time that has specifically been going to in-laws, as it were, or going to the friends of partners. Otherwise, I don't do it. And I pretty much have let all of my friends know that this is not a thing that I do. It's just kind of like this understanding that we all have that Ivy doesn't come to dinner. <laughs> it's just not a thing that happens. One of the, the most awkward things for me and it has absolutely nothing to do like negatively with Calvin's parents at all. That is the most awkward thing for me that I end up doing on a somewhat regular basis. We try to go over there for dinner about once a month. His parents are wonderful. They are lovely people. They always treat me incredibly well. They're always very sweet and very welcoming. No issues there at all. They're good people. I just have a shit ton of social anxiety. And because they are my partner's parents, and I love Calvin, and I'm thinking this one's a keeper, and I want to stay with him. I definitely want to make sure that relations between me and his family stay really good. So there's a lot more masking that I do because I want to be respectful. So I try not to cuss when I'm in when I'm at their house, which is really hard for me to do because I curse like a sailor most of the time. There's a lot of things that I don't talk about because they're just not polite dinner conversation. I do get really shy and quiet because I'm like, I don't know what to say. Because I don't think I should be completely authentically myself right now. <laughs> That's how I am in all social situations, which is why I try to avoid them if I don't have a predetermined script. Work stuff is fine because there's a predetermined script for it. Social things, not fine. There's no, no predetermined script. I try as much as possible just to like engage his mom in, in talking about what's going on with her. And I'm always thankful when they ask questions because then I have something that I can say but most of the time my mind is a complete blank and the the two things that always end up happening that make it really awkward for me is that because his mom is a really good cook and there's so many things that I haven't ever tried that are part of Chinese cuisine she's always making different things for me so that I can try a wide variety of stuff and she always the first few bites like looks at me while I'm eating because she wants to see if I enjoy it. And I always do because it's always delicious and it's an adventure every time because there's so many things that I just don't know about other cultures when it comes to food because we were raised very white and Midwestern. But it's just awkward to have her looking at me when I'm eating because I have so many issues around that. But I'm not going to tell the woman, can you just not look at me right now? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. So that's one of the things that happens. And the other thing that happens almost every single time is at one point I will end up dropping a piece of food 
or when I'm eating with the chopsticks, I'll lose my grip on one of them and it will clatter to the floor every single time. It's because I'm so nervous and I'm so anxious. I will get clumsy with my, <laughs> my food and it'll end up on me or it'll end up on, on the floor. Everybody, thankfully, in the room is is sweet enough to ignore it but every fucking time it happens and now i have like this anxiety about it happening whenever i know we're gonna be going over there because i know i'm gonna be a klutz <laughs> so yeah it's an ordeal going to dinner is an ordeal for me it sounds like an ordeal and, and i i will have to say though because we are talking you know primarily the autism the adhd but i do i do think that a little bit of the ptsd neurodivergence comes in with this particular scenario because the only family dinners we had as children for the most part were the most stressful events you could possibly imagine they were horrifying and so i i mean i think a little bit of me anytime we go out to like have a, a family especially a family meal there's a little bit of trigger happening i don't know about for you but i feel like there's a little bit of trigger happening going holy fuck what is going to you know it explode is somebody going to say something are we going to survive this meal and then you add the social anxiety on top of it and it's this is like the perfect storm of horror yeah, absolutely. There is definitely a huge part of that that factors into all my anxiety around it because it's not just food, which I have a complicated relationship with. It's, and it's not just social interaction. It's a family social interaction. And I, I only have one concept of family and that was our family. Family dinners were the only time all of our family was in the same room at the same time because we all hated each other and we did not want to be in the same room. And since it was the only time we were all together, it was also the only time that fights would break out because when we were under that pressure of being in an enclosed space together, somebody would say something that would set off somebody else and then there would be this huge fight and then Autumn and I would end up in the bathroom crying. But there were so many times when it would be so painfully awkward, Autumn and I could not sit across the table from each other because we would make eye contact and we would start nervous laughing and we would spew food across the table at each other. But our family was just so like fucked that even when we would do that, we would be laughing hysterically, spitting food everywhere and nobody else in the family would even react to it. So yes, family dinners are, are a whole nightmare in, in and of themselves. They, they totally are. And the other thing I remember too with that though, and maybe if you had a dysfunctional family, it was the same, but you also had all these dyadic relationships. So I had a relationship with Ivy and with mom and with our brother. I did not have a relationship with Ivy, mom, and our brother. This was all one-to-one-to-one-to-one. To one to one to one. That's how it all worked in our family. And so when you sat down at a family dinner, you now had multiple interactions when you were very different people and held very different roles with all these people. And for me, and maybe it was just the autism and the masking. For me, it was it was horrifying because I'm like, wait, am, am I sister? Am I sister to Ivy? Am I sister to my brother? Am I daughter? Am I daughter to my mother? Am I daughter to my father? Am I granddaughter? Because I don't know who to be. And it was like my masks were spritzing out on me because I couldn't be all of these people at the same time. But because it was a dysfunctional family, there was an extreme rigidity to that role. And it was so, uh, I felt so glitchy. I agree. All right. So 
what do I think you do when it comes to having dinner at somebody's house? Okay. I would say that you will probably go along with it if you feel like you need to do it, but you will want to know all of the information in advance. You want to know whose house it is. You want to know what kind of food is going to be served. You want to know who all is going to be there. You want to know if there's going to be activities other than eating. You want to know what time you get to leave. You want to know where the bathroom is at in their house. You want to know if they have pets, if they have kids. You want to know as many details as you can possibly get beforehand. And then when you show up there, no one would know how anxious you actually are because you are very good at masking and you're very good at starting conversations and talking and seeming at ease. And you actually are very entertaining to be around and people genuinely enjoy being around you. So it, you know, this ability to kind of like break the ice in awkward situations and to make sure that everybody's needs are being fulfilled. It's very anxiety ridden for you though. I think like everybody else is feeling chill and they're feeling good about the situation and you're making everybody laugh and everybody's feeling it except for you. And you're like dying inside because you're trying to see to everybody's needs at the same time. And you're trying to kind of be the life of the party and keep things going smoothly all while desperately thinking, when is this going to end? And when can I go home? Yes. To all points. Like if you could give me like a novel worth of debriefing, that would not be enough details pre pre dinner <laughs> in any social interaction, just about like, I want to know everything. Like Ivy said, everything, absolute necessity. And part of it, honestly, I need to know when we can leave and how long the event is going to be because I will end up not functional by the end of the night. I will get a headache so extreme from the amount of stress and anxiety I have that I am going to be blacked out with pain by the end of the night. And I have to know, like, how many supplements do I need to take to make this, you know, last longer? Can I have pain medication in the car so that I'm ready for it as soon as I hit the car? Like, that is part of it for me. It's not just like, oh, I'm anxious and would like to know the routine. It's I am going to lose functionality by the end of this I need to know how long I have to push myself to keep functioning and yeah I will step in and I will own the room pretty much everything I go to I'm going to be happy I'm going to be the life of the party I have to be careful to not be too exuberant I'm interacting with the kids I'm interacting with the parents I'm over here in the kitchen I'm doing everything for everybody and yes I am dying inside and I will literally want to die because the amount of pain I am in by the end of the evening. <laughs> so long story short, please God, don't invite Ivy or myself to dinner. Yeah, I agree. That is the, if you take nothing away from this episode, take that one away from it. We love you guys. We're so glad you're here listening. We would love to get to know you better, but not over dinner and especially not over dinner at your house or ours. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the next. Okay, so this is another social situation, but this is a much larger social situation. So this is something like going to a fair or a carnival, something huge. So you've got a lot of noise, you've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of events, and you've got a lot of opportunity for socialization, but also the potential to not necessarily socialize and kind of blend in. Ivy going to a fair I, I think she's going to have to have a fallback plan. I could be wrong, but I think there's going to be so much going on that she is going to get sensory overwhelmed at some point. And so she's either going to need to go out or have taken extra supplements or have supplements on hand to be able to deal with the excessive stimulation that's going to happen. And I imagine for the most part, though, she's going to be fairly quiet. 
And she's going to be very observant of other people, just kind of watching everybody and seeing what they're doing. It may look like she's like chilling on the vibe, but I think it's partially controlling sensory overwhelm and partially just finding a little bit of peace in not having to be noticed and not having to socialize necessarily because the gathering is so big. Definitely the sensory overload. That happens to me even in relatively calm situations. So going to a fair, I do like going to the fair about once every two to three years. And that is all I can manage because it's just so much going on. I do enjoy it though. I prefer to be there as it's getting towards nighttime because I like all the pretty lights that are at the fair. I really like the food at the fair. I spend a lot of my time at the fair just eating. I do have to drink alcohol though, because otherwise I will not be able to handle everything going on around me. I do not like it when other people talk to me. I want to go there with the one person that I went with and I do not want other people interjecting themselves. Nothing drives me more crazy than standing in line for food or for a ride. And the other people standing in line have this pressure of speech and they feel like they got to talk to you because you're standing next to them. Just don't do that, please. I can exist with you right there and me right here. And we can just act like there's a world between us. Like I'm cool with that. I don't like being talked to by strangers. I really hate it if it's a ride that you get on and you have to sit next to a stranger because to me, that is a loose cannon. I don't know if you're going to be screaming in my ear. I don't know if you're going to be laughing. I don't know if you're going to puke. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I have a lot of social anxiety, even though I'm not interacting directly with people, because there are so many unknown factors. There's so many strangers there. There's so much going on. I don't know what to expect. So I have a lot of that. And I have a lot of inner monologue going on partially because I am doing a lot of people watching so I'm having inner monologue about what those people are doing and sometimes I'll bring it up to my partner if I see something interesting I'm like Calvin look over there do you see that do you see the hat that person's wearing I wonder where they got it from do you think they got it here at the fair I kind of want to I kind of want to get a hat like that so I, I have moments like that and I also have a lot of moments where I am trying to hype myself to go on rides because I am a gigantic scaredy cat and all of these rides look like they would be cool. And I want to prove to myself that I'm brave enough to go on the rides. And Calvin's like, let's go, because he's an adrenaline junkie. But he wants to go on the most extreme ones, like the one where they, uh, they basically slingshot you up into the air. And just looking at it terrifies me. And it's not happening. I will go on the Tilt-A-Whirl a million times. That's fine with me. I'll go, <laughs> I'll go on the super chill ones. But the other ones scare me. So I spend a lot of time hyping myself up trying to tell myself I'm going to go on the big scary rides and it never happens. And I'm always disappointed in myself. But every, every time I go, I tell myself I'm going to go on big scary rides. And it's, I consider it a success if I go on like eight rides the entire time that I'm there. But most of the time I'm just eating and trying not to be completely overwhelmed from a sensory standpoint, because there's no place to escape. Because once you leave the fairgrounds, a lot of times like it's hard to get back in. So I try not to be there super long, try to get there kind of as dusk is settling in so I can see all the pretty lights and do the things, but not be stuck there for a super long time. I could see all that. I could definitely see all that. I forgot about the food. Since I can't have any of the food, I forgot about the food. But if you can eat the food, yeah. Oh my God, the food at fairs. <sighs> I mean, I'm not supposed to eat pretty much anything that they have at the fair, but it's one of those things where I weigh it out and I say, is it worth the price I'm going to pay? And a lot of times the answer is yes, because a lot of those foods that I get at the fair, I can only get at the fair. 
and I only go to a fair about once every two to three years. So I, a lot of times I make the sacrifice because it's, it's worth it until the next day when I'm actually feeling the consequences, then it doesn't feel so worth it. All right. So going to the fair for you, I think, no, probably not. <laughs> if you can help it. I very much doubt you go on rides. If you could have the food, I think you would eat a lot of the food, but I think you will probably find like the 4-H people so you can pet the goats and the ponies and play with the ducklings or whatever animals it is that they have there. And you probably will try not to stay for a super long time. I suspect you do probably also kind of like the twinkly lights because it is kind of pretty at night. And you probably will engage in conversation with the people standing in line next with you. Not that you would start the conversation, but if they start talking to you, you will probably talk to them and they'll walk away from that interaction thinking that they've made a new best friend. All right. So this one is actually the one you were the least spot on about, Ivy. So I actually, we have a tiny, so this is a tiny, tiny town that I live in. It's like 2000 some people or whatever, but it's the county seat. So, you know, woohoo! and we have a 4th of July carnival. And I recently got to go to that last year. And I went on almost all of the rides and I enjoyed them. Actually, they were a bit like, woo, like one was very spinny and I had to take like, I don't know, 15 minutes after the spinny to stop. Um, I don't talk to anybody in the line. And that is because I am so sensorily overwhelmed. I have completely zoned everybody out except for what is in front of me. So if I am in line, that is the extent of what I am able to perceive at that moment because my senses are so overwhelmed. I've had to shut everything else down. And so people like my boyfriend was there and he, he literally have to be like, no, she's, she was saying something to you. She's talking to you. And I'm like, who is, what, what, who is talking to me? Like I am, I block everybody out <laughs> because like, I'm like, literally I have nothing left because there's so much happening. I cannot perceive you anymore at all. I do like the twinkly lights, but I will do the twinkly lights when driving by because I want to go during the day so I can see everything. I went to the to the big fair with you. I think it was in Tulsa once. And so this was the only other carnival I've been to in my entire life. And I'm like 41 years old. And so I was very like, what is the appropriate way to be on this ride? Is this acceptable? Are you allowed to do this? What are the rules? And I guess everybody knows what the rules of carnival rides and games and everything are and I had no idea and so I was very obsessed with like what are the rules and in what order should we do the things and so yeah it was very overwhelming but I did enjoy it and yeah I went during the daytime and it was it was not bad and I do wish I could have eaten the food but sadly the consequences for me would have been like two weeks of lost time so I am actually very surprised by all of those things just goes to show you that when you think you really know somebody sometimes you don't because I did not expect any of those things. You are apparently braver than I am since you go on pretty much all the rides. I'm terrified of most of them. I, it does make sense after you explained it though, how you completely shut everything out because you're so overwhelmed from a sensory standpoint. I, I do get that now that you brought it up. The other two things that I took from that is, one, I don't remember at all going to a carnival or fair with you. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I have no, no recollection of it whatsoever. The other thing that you said that kind of took me off guard is you were saying that everybody else seems to know the rules for how you're supposed to act on rides and at the games and everything. And my first thought when you said that was, I didn't know there were rules. 
So <laughs> apparently you thought that one through more than I have, because I just go and I am, I guess, the center of my own universe. And I don't really notice if there's rules or things that you're supposed to do or ways that you're supposed to act. I just do the things as I see fit to do the things. And I don't really notice the other people and whether or not they're okay with me doing the things that I'm doing. I, I do think that part is my autism coming up and just that I guess just growing up autistic back in the day, it just naturally happened that you realized everything you did naturally was the wrong thing. And if you didn't want to constantly be wrong and you wanted to participate or have fun or not be reprimanded, you had to figure out what the right thing was. And as soon as you figured out like the password, it was all good. And so that's definitely my autism that comes back in. It's like, oh, this is a new social situation. We must learn the rules so that we cannot appear to be an alien. Because if I am an alien, then these are the negative consequences. So that just automatically happens to me in any new social situation is I have to learn, <laughs> learn the rules because it does feel like an alien coming into something. I have no concept of these things that are naturally happening. But because of the way I was raised, I have a distinct knowledge that I do not know what's going on. Like I know that I don't know and that I should know. That's that's definitely an autistic piece. Hmm. I don't know if this is something that other ADHD people have, but I, I am not super cognizant of rules in most situations. Like in a lot of ways, I just kind of accept that I am alien and I'm probably gonna do things wrong or make things awkward and weird. I've just kind of accepted that uh, my primary way of masking when I was younger was just to make myself as small and forgettable as possible. That's how I avoided getting into trouble and tried to avoid bullying. So I was just like, well, I am an alien and there's nothing I can do about that. So if I can just make people forget that I exist, that'll probably work out okay for me. Now as an adult, I probably do pretty much the same thing, although I don't make myself as small all the time. I just kind of go through the world accepting that I'm an alien and being like, y'all fucking deal with it. If you notice me, that's not my problem. You do you do pull your energy in a lot. Like that is something I can feel around people and you pull your energy in a lot. Like even when we're in the same environment, you and Jake, both of you end up sneaking up on me all the fucking time because you keep your energy so close to you that I can forget you're in the same like room as me if I don't directly see you or hear you. And I ended up doing the opposite though, because I knew like that I had to figure out the social situation. And since I knew I couldn't figure out all the social situations, I learned that if I could control the social situation, I could mold it into a script that I did know which would then allow me to appear successfully human. So that's part of why I seem so gregarious and outgoing. It's honestly a form of manipulation based on anxiety to create a social situation that I understand so that I can be human. I don't know why it matters so much to me because like ultimately I don't care, but part of me is like, but you do. So I'm not sure why I care so much. I think you care because there's consequences. And consequences for you because of our upbringing feel so much bigger than consequences feel to a lot of other people because you were responsible for everything, basically, in our family. So I don't know. That's my take on it. I think that's probably where that comes from. It's not that you care from an individualistic standpoint because you're pretty comfortable with yourself and who you are as a person and your, uh, your status as an alien. 
but there are consequences for being that in the world. And so you kind of have to weigh things out. And I, to a certain degree, like we all do that. It's just, we deal with it in different ways. Cause I think when you are neurodivergent, you do just feel like a fucking alien all the time, everywhere you go. And it's just a matter of how much you're going to accept that about yourself, how you're going to mask when you need to mask, if you're going to go, if you're going to go big or go home type of thing, or if you're going to be like me and you just make yourself small. I scare the shit out of people constantly by sneaking up on them without trying to, especially since I started working as a massage therapist, because those places tend to be pretty quiet anyway. And when you're an extra quiet person, you know, your coworker turner turns around and you're standing right there. And they're like, oh my God, oh my God, you scared me. You gave me a heart attack. Why did you sneak up on me? I don't, I just walked here. I just walked here and I'm standing here because you're in my way. I was trying to get to my bag. Can you move now? Oh, yeah. I, I do think part of it is is a little bit of a split between the autism and the ADHD, though, because a lot of people that I've I've seen on the TikTok and I've talked to with the autism, they have that same mentality, though, that like they need to understand the rules and they need to fit in. And I wonder if part of that is, you know, stereotyping here, but overall, many of us tend to be more compliant as children. We tend to be more rule followers. And I think somewhere along the way, it was, you know, said this is what it should be. And we're always trying to reach for that should. Like once you hand an autistic person a should, you, you just created a sub-reality and you better be happy with it because that is going to be reality now is kind of what it feels like. And so I think it, it that is one of those splits that come between ADHD and autism, at least from what I've perceived from others, but maybe I'm wrong. So if I'm wrong, definitely reach out and tell, tell me. But I do feel like autistic people have more of a tendency to feel like they have to try to fit in even if that means sacrificing their own resources and their own mental health to mask. And another thing here that I also find kind of interesting, and I may be wrong about this, but it's something that I've noticed as far as ADHD, there are so many women that get their ADHD diagnosis much later in life. Like they don't get diagnosed as a kid. They don't get diagnosed until they're well into adulthood. And I kind of wonder if there's this thing going on where it's more than just the ADHD, where women, at least in, in US culture, I, I won't speak to other places in the world because I'm not super familiar with other cultures, but in the US for such a long time, it has been very much the order of the day that women should make themselves small. You be small, you be submissive, you be quiet. That's what you do. Otherwise you get in trouble. And yes, that's now starting to shift, but that is a very recent shift. And I can't help but wonder if there were a lot of little girls like me where they just tried to make themselves small so that they wouldn't get in trouble. They, they didn't act out in those ways that are typically associated with kids that have ADHD. If we just really clamped down and tried to make ourselves small so that people wouldn't notice or that we uh, were overachievers because I feel like that happens a lot too. There's a lot of perfectionism, like a debilitating, a debilitating amount of perfectionism in people with ADHD. And if you're trying to not get in trouble, if you're trying to be the good kid, if you're if you're trying to be a good girl, you're probably not going to act out. I mean, some I'm sure did, but I'll, I think there's probably a lot of us that didn't act out. We either made ourselves small and or we tried to be an overachiever. We tried to get really good grades. We tried to do really good in our extracurricular activities because it was a way for us to be accepted and at the same time hide the struggles that we had going on inside of us. So I don't know if it's like different for men or women when it comes to like the ADHD and how it manifests in them. 
I don't know how common my response is as a woman with ADHD. From what I've seen, and again, you know, I don't, I've not spoken to every individual with ADHD in the world, obviously, but from what I see a lot in the media, I think it's a pretty common response that either complete, almost like you said, debilitating perfectionist, like gifted child versus the be extremely quiet, extremely small. And, you know, as you were saying that, I think that's part of why the autistic people are looking for those rules. Because when you say, well, I could just make myself small and I could be quiet, even those concepts are foreign to me because they are so, I don't know, they mean something and I don't know what they mean. So even if I wanted to have chosen to be quiet, I would have had to said, okay, what does it mean to be quiet? Does it mean I don't speak? What am I supposed to do with my body? What should my face look like? What movement should I have when I am being quiet? Because I don't know any of that. So even for me to decide I should be quiet or I should make myself small would have required me to study the humans around me so that I could achieve being quiet or being small because I did not understand what that meant. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our next scenario. The, the most common issue you have in your intimate relationship. Okay, what do I think is the most common issue that Ivy has in her relationship? Okay, so I'm going to try and come at this from an ADHD perspective, like what issue is driven by her ADHD? Because I know there's some issues in there that are driven by her PTSD. Okay, so I'm going to go with, I think it's one of two things, her partner's incessant need to speak or interact with her. And even if he, if, even if he wasn't probably on the spectrum, I would say even um, being interrupted. So the other person needs something and she was like focused on a task and she got interrupted. And that's going to be very difficult for her. And I think over time that would be annoying, which may be part of the reason she's hyper-independent. Um, the other piece I would say that might be issue is he's going to be efficient beyond all else and no other factors are considered. And Ivy being ADHD, but there's 2 billion other factors here and you just cut out all of them, but one dude, that that's not cool. So th these are my guesses based solely on ADHD characteristics you have. My ADHD is really showing me here. What was the first one you said? I forgot. Being interrupted, <laughs> essentially being interrupted, especially with your current partner, because he has a lot of pressure of speech. Okay. You know, I, I honestly don't even know how much of it is pressure of speech with him and how much of it is that he just, he, he just likes to get things out of his head. Because a lot of times I don't think he feels a pressure to, to talk. I think he just has a lot going on in his head and it needs to go somewhere and it can't just get trapped in there. It does get really overwhelming for me when he's on a roll because he can talk for a really long time. He can talk for hours without needing much interaction at all. I think it would cause more issues in the relationship if we haven't learned to like play off of each other. So well, there's a lot of things that like could really grate for us but we're actually super understanding of each other in a lot of ways. A lot of times he, when he's talking, he doesn't need much interaction from me. So I'm like doing my own thing and I kind of mentally check in from time to time. So I know roughly what he's talking about and I give some interaction because I want him to know that, yes, I do care about you. 
I'm getting way more information than I can actually take in from you, but I do care and I'm listening as much as I'm able. He doesn't ever seem to take offense to it if he doesn't feel like I'm listening. If anything, he sometimes will play games with me where he can tell that I've zoned out for a while and so he'll throw a weird curveball in there by asking me a question. One that he he knows what my answer would be but he's trying to get the opposite answer out of me. One of his things that he gets stuck on is he pretends like he doesn't like dogs. He loves dogs. They'll be like, dogs are bad, aren't they? Dogs are really, really horrible, aren't they? And when I'm when I'm zoned out, I'll be like, uh-huh. And he's like, see, you admitted it, dogs are bad. So it's like, for us, it's actually become kind of a game. The efficiency thing, I think he may get annoyed when I'm not being super efficient, if he has something that he really wants to do, because he, again, he's a huge gearhead and he always has all these things that he wants to do on his car. So if I'm like, let's go grocery shopping today and we go grocery shopping, but the entire time he's thinking about this thing that he wants to do to his car and I'm taking a long time, he will get annoyed. But instead of lashing out at me, he just gets on his phone and he's researching the thing that he's planning to do to his car or other things he wants to do to his car later on. It's his way of coping without lashing out at me. I'm actually very appreciative of how patient he is as a partner. Is there anything he does that drives you nuts though, that you're like, oh my God, man. I really, the only thing that drives me nuts with him is like the, is, and I've brought it up in multiple episodes of the podcast before, is just time management, which seems like a weird thing for an ADHD person <laughs> to get upset about. And if it's anybody else, I don't care. But if it's my romantic partner, I care a lot. That has been the one thing that he does that drives me crazy because he gets very hyper-focused on what he's working on and he forgets about time. He forgets about pretty much everything when he's working on stuff. He is a very focused and driven person when he finds something that he really wants to do or that he's interested in. So that's really been the only thing. We're still working on it. It's gotten a lot better than it used to be, but that is probably the biggest relational issue that comes up. <laughs> He's literally the only person on the planet whose time management I give a shit about. And only, really only since we started living together, because when we didn't live under the same roof, we would text throughout the day. I knew he was fine. I wasn't really worried about anything. And since we didn't live under the same roof, I didn't know what time he was supposed to get home. He could have stayed out all night and I wouldn't have fucking known. But once we moved in together, I was very conscious of his time management and, and very conscious of his schedule or lack thereof. See, I didn't mention time management because... I was thinking that was more PTSD driven. But part of me wonders, like, because you have had issues in the past with time management and always being late and being off schedule, if you worked so hard at it that part of it is like your annoyance at like, dude, you don't know how much effort I put into this. Step up a little bit. I mean, there is a little bit of that. The other thing that factors into it is if we have something that we need to do because I always have this list of things that need to be done and that's always ever present in my mind. Uh, and if I am prevented from doing the thing because he is not home yet or he's in the middle of doing something, then I get really stressed out because if I have it in my mind, they're like, okay, we need to do the grocery shopping today. This is my biggest goal for the day. This thing must get done. Even if nothing else gets done, this thing must get done. And I'm really focused on getting that thing done because it's the thing that has to get done that I sometimes like I don't want to do and I am dependent on him to a certain degree to be able to do the thing and I have a list of other things that I want to do afterward but I can't do those things because we need to go grocery shopping and I thought we were going to go grocery shopping right now and we're not doing it 
So like that factors in, or if we have to, if we're supposed to go someplace for a social thing, if we're going to dinner at his parents' place, if we're going to a, a party at a friend's house, and we said we would be there at a certain time, because I have worked really hard at getting better at being on time, because I used to be a total asshole, and I would just show up like three, four hours late without explanation or and without telling people. That was just kind of how I operated for a long time. So that one is a trigger for me because I really worked hard to fix that. It's a combination of factors. It It is really hard to like pick out like one piece of like, oh, this is the PTSD or this is the ADHD. When you've, when you've got an alphabet soup of mental health, which I feel like so many of us do, it is really hard to pinpoint one thing that's like, yes, this is that. All right, Ivy, so what do you think my biggest relational issue is that's driven by my autism? I think uh, time management comes up for you as well. And also some rigid thinking <laughs> because you are somebody who always wants to get places early and get things done as soon as possible. So that you don't have to worry about it later. You want to be prepared. You want to be on top of things. You want to be ahead of the game. That's a super important thing to you. That is not important to Jake at all from what I have gathered. Uh, also, you are very structured in the way that you think about things. You're very structured in the way that routines are set up and the order that things need to be done and the time that they need to be done by and what day of the week they need to be done on. Like you are very, very structured and Jake is very, it'll get done at some point. Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. It's going to get done. Like Jake is just so much more chill. He's just kind of floating out there in the ocean and that does not jive well with you and how you operate and you i think you probably micromanage him a little bit just a bit if by a little bit you mean a lot of bit yes um yeah the the rigidity versus the fluidity is the biggest issue that we have continuously over everything i you know we were talking about the morning routine earlier and there was one day we were having to get ready for work and um, we needed to get the garbage ready to go so that we could take that on the way in. And I had let him know the night before that that needed to happen. He was like, okay, I will get up five minutes early to make that happen. And he didn't. He got up at his normal time, which is like five minutes after me, which is just like, but dude, the garbage. And then it got time where I was ready to leave and the garbage wasn't done. And I was stressing out and we couldn't find the four-wheeler key, which we needed to get the garbage in the four-wheeler. and you know, he's thinking, but we have this like 30 minute cushion of time. Like we're still going to be early. It's not a big deal. But in my mind, that's a cushion. We don't get to use it. Like it's it's technically there for emergencies, but the, you don't use the cushion. The cushion just exists. And we had not met my expectations for how the morning routine was going, which made me super anxious. And then he could tell I was getting super anxious and then he has the rejection sensitivity. And so he thinks that he's failed me now. And so that that's where we end up grinding a lot is I get very, very specific expectations about how things are supposed to be. And automatically before I can catch myself, my anxiety starts building really, really bad when those expectations aren't met. And then he sees the anxiety and he thinks, oh, I've made her mad. It must be because I failed. It must be because I'm a bad person. And so that's where our ADHD and autism, that's one of the places it grinds so bad. <laughs> but we're, we're both learning. We're both learning. And time management, definitely. Because one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if this is all ADHD people, but a lot of them I've met, they have to work themselves up to do a task. And so if we, he and I have two days off together, 
I want to get all of our tasks done the morning of the first day because then I don't have to worry about them and my anxiety eases. And that stresses Jake out to no end because he's not had time to work himself up to complete the tasks. And so we've, we've had to find ways to compromise and work around each other and be very aware of our own issues so that, that he can step in and go, okay, yes, yeah, she's anxious, but that's because of her anxiety and her issues. It's not because I'm a bad person. And I can go, oh, shit, I'm anxious for no fucking reason. It's because my routine is not meeting the expectation. And that doesn't, it's not, it doesn't matter. And so we both had to learn a lot of self-awareness so that we don't, we don't melt our gears when they start grinding. I can definitely see that for sure. Some of that plays out in my relationship with Calvin too, because I've also got that rejection sensitivity. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to, oh, the next scenario, which is being, being overwhelmed. There is too much going on and you are literally at the end of it and about to flip your shit overwhelmed. What does that look like for Ivy? Well, I'm going to say this looks really, really scary. And this is scary from my perspective, which means you get probably really, really, really quiet and really, really, really short. So there's going to be very few words and it's just going to be very, like you said earlier, like staccato. And that, the, the crazy thing to me is that to me, that's really scary because when you get really quiet, at some point you will explode <laughs> is, my, is the way I see it. But you never seem to reach that point. You never seem to actually explode, which I think makes me even more concerned that somehow you're keeping some of this pressure from all of the previous times you haven't exploded, like some sort of bloaty onion that one day is just going to go nuclear is my fear. And so I think you get really, really quiet. I've never been described as a bloated onion, <laughs> but I'll take it. It's fine. Um, yeah. You are correct. I do get very quiet. I get, I make myself even smaller. I get pretty intense. I don't know how I look from the outside, but I feel like I look intense and I do get very short. I, I try not to sound mean. It's really hard for me to control completely when I'm feeling super overwhelmed. Calvin's pretty much figured out when I get super overwhelmed because he tends to be a jokester. He's always kind of playing around. He's just kind of goofy and he's fun. But when I'm really overwhelmed, I can't handle it. <laughs> and he knows when I have reached my limit because I turn to him and I say, can you not? And he knows, okay, that's, that's it. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to back up now. Game over. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to push this any further because that is what happens when I get overwhelmed. I am at that point. I don't think he's, I don't think he has ever seen me lose my shit. Very few people have ever seen me lose my shit, especially as I have gotten older. I don't do it in front of other people. I don't just completely stuff it all down inside, but I wait until it is convenient for me to lose my shit. And that is always when I am by myself. I don't do it in front of other people. And part of that is because I don't want other people to have to be around that because a lot of the time in our family, when, when people would explode, they would really explode. They would go nuclear and it made me very scared and I would just try to make myself super small. And so I don't like to put other people in a position where they feel that way. I don't want to scare people. I don't want to hurt anybody. So I really have this super tight control over how I act. 
wait until I am alone because then I'm not going to scare or hurt anybody except for maybe myself. And I feel like that is a better alternative. And also you enunciate a lot more. Can you not? Yeah. Like, I forgot about that. I, as you said that, I remember like, yep, that's the enunciation. Once you start seeing really clear enunciation, just start backing down. Yeah. Because usually I just talk pretty casually, but when I am very overwhelmed, it's, <laughs> and, and I usually go on tangents as, as you have seen from the podcast, this episode and others, but when I'm really overwhelmed, there are no tangents. I am very, very precise in what I want to say. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't even notice that before, but you are right. I do enunciate things like perfectly when I'm really upset. <laughs> everything has to be slow and controlled because that's the only way that I can keep myself from exploding in front of other people. All right. So how do you act when you are overwhelmed? I, I don't know if it's the same way now, but I have seen you when you are really overwhelmed and, and I'm not saying this the, it, like in a way that you are an asshole or anything like that. It's just the way that you respond when you're super overwhelmed was also in a lot of ways how sometimes our parents would respond or like pretty much anybody else in the family. I feel like grandma and I were the same on this where it was like, we'll just internalize everything and we just won't show other people how overwhelmed we are. But everybody else in the family, it was like this big thing. I've seen you like throw things and scream and just like completely melt down. I don't know if that's the same as it used to be, or if that's changed for you, but that is my recollection of you is like when you get really overwhelmed and it's too much to handle, there is a lot of screaming, there's throwing things. I've seen you self-harm before. Like your reaction to being overwhelmed, I don't know how much of that has to do with our upbringing and how we were raised and that sort of thing. But I have noticed the other people that I'm close to who are on the autism spectrum, when they reach that, that place of being completely overwhelmed, there is that need for a significant pressure release and there is screaming and yelling and throwing things and slamming your head against stuff. It's just, it's very big. So that's, that, I'm basing that on previous recollections of you, but I don't know if it's the same now as it used to be. Yes, it, it is the same now. And that is part of why my entire life is focused on self-maintenance is so that I do not become overwhelmed because that is a constant threat and possibility in my daily life. But I, I call those and other people I've heard refer to them to it, it's an autistic meltdown. You get to a point, at least from my experience, where you literally have no more control. It you have awareness and you can see what you're doing, but you have no control over it. It's like your body and your nervous system is so fritzed out you can't not. And something has to give, like you said, that pressure valve. Not everybody ends up being, I mean, let's just face it, it, it's violent is what it looks. It may not be violent towards others, but it is violent. It is throwing, it is breaking, it is banging your head on something, it is punching a wall, it is significant. And I think part of that comes from, at least for me, a lot of times when I'm overwhelmed, the biggest piece of it is a sensory overwhelm. It's a complete sensory overload. My emotions are filling my body. The lights are too big. Things are touching me. There's too much sound. It's just too much. And I think because it's connected so much to my body, something has to happen with my body physically. 
I do not have the capacity to stay quiet. I do not have the capacity to control it. I do not have the capacity to keep it inside. So everything I have to do is based on preventing myself from reaching that point. Because once that point is reached, that is the outcome. And the other thing I've noticed too, though, with the majority of autistic people, when you have, when we have these meltdowns, you're also not typically violent towards others. It's not like you're punching anybody. It's usually a self-harm. And I think it's something about that pain response specifically that helps to almost reset the nervous system. I don't know how. I've not done a lot of research on that. But pain for me is an absolute necessity to bring that back down. So I do end up having to punch something or bang my head up against a wall because without that pain, for some reason, my body just will not reset. But luckily, they don't usually last very long. <laughs> they get big and then they go away. But I, it is terrifying and I hate being that way and I hate the kind of uh, the, the vicarious terror that I cause other people just horrifies me and is so guilty. And even in the moment I see it, but I cannot do anything about it and it is breaking my heart and it adds to the overwhelm. And so I do everything I can to make sure I never get overwhelmed. Yeah, I will say that uh, from my experience from with the people in my life who are on the autism spectrum, I have never felt personally in danger when they've been having meltdowns. I am always more concerned about them hurting themselves or concerned about other people on the outside who don't understand, maybe even calling the cops. Cause sometimes it get like those, I never had that with autumn, but with some of the other people in my life who, who are on the autism spectrum, when they have those big meltdowns, they, they sometimes will do that, you know, out in the open too. And so I'm always concerned that maybe somebody who doesn't understand what's going on and might be responding from a space of fear might call the authorities or something like that. And it would create an even bigger issue. So like, those are always my two biggest concerns. It's like, I don't want this person that I care about to hurt themselves. And I also don't want bystanders who don't understand what's going on to overreact to the situation or try to get involved or try to stop what's going on. Because one of the things that I have learned over time is that, yes, these explosions are very big when they, when there's that pressure release, it is big and it can look very scary, but it is over very quickly. And it is pretty insular in the sense that it's not a lashing out. It is a lashing in. It is always a lashing in. Like the shitty part for me as somebody on the outside is watching somebody that I love and knowing that like this is part of their process and they have reached a point where this now has to happen and just trying to mitigate any serious damage. Yeah. And that was honestly the very, very first thing I learned because initially I didn't have the coping skills necessary to not get overwhelmed. It would just happen. And so I had to learn the signs of the approaching meltdown so that I could get myself to a safe location to have the meltdown, whether that was a public restroom, whether it was my car. But I had to learn those because like I said, once it happens, there's no stopping it. And I could start reading the signals. But that was one of the first things I did is what are these signals so I can do this privately because it is scary. It's really fucking scary. I'd be terrified if somebody around me acted that way. But I also get it at the same time. I completely get it because you can't not. It's just what happens. All right. So the very last scenario we're going to talk about today, being put under pressure. So you have a task and it needs to be done right now. 
Like, why is this not done? You have like 14 seconds. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know what, Ivy? I'm going to put you under pressure. What do you think being put under pressure looks like for me? I think being put under pressure looks like you being an overachiever. Because when you are put under pressure, you're just like, okay, I guess I'm under pressure. And I will I will not only meet your expectations, I will go above and beyond because you fucking put me under pressure. So take that. I'm going to do even more than what you demanded from me. I feel like that's how you deal with being under pressure. You don't just do the thing. You like overdo the thing. And almost it is a uh, way to people please, but then also, oh, you thought you had me under pressure. Well, fuck you. I did even more than you wanted me to. That's how I perceive you. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's kind of a good thing. There's a little bit of rebellion in there. I like it. It is. It's a compliant rebellion. And I'm just laughing the whole time because that is that is so spot on. I am an overachiever. I'm an overachiever naturally. And you put me under pressure and it is like, oh, you're trying to control me. You're trying to make me look bad. Oh, fuck you, buddy. You don't want to play this game. <laughs> And I, yeah, I step up, I go toe to toe with that, like it's a fucking challenge, and I am gonna win this game. And and just because the way I am, like I talked about, you know, I've got that little cushion in my morning routine. I have my cushion in everything. Like I expect things to go horribly wrong and take twice as long. So when I gave you the deadline, I doubled that already just to make it look like I am a normal person. And then I've also really efficient. And so I am going to overachieve anyway. And then once you put me under pressure, honestly, a lot of times, especially like if it's a work environment, this isn't pressure. This is amusing to me that you're trying to manipulate me and play this. That's what it is. And so, yeah, I do step up and be like, yeah, fuck you. I don't know that it's really honestly, most people can put me under pressure from the external because I've already set up all these cushions. And so I've got like a whole airbag system around me. So it's kind of hard to put me under pressure, I feel like. It's nearly impossible, if not impossible, to really pressure Autumn because she will always exceed your expectations and you will feel like a jackass and probably stupid afterward. Like it's not even worth it. There's no payoff to putting them under pressure because you walk away feeling like somehow you were under pressure instead. I feel like that's what happens. Like she turns around, turns it around on you. Oh, that is the ultimate goal. I want you to come off feeling like a jackass. I am condescendingly overachieving. <laughs> okay, so Ivy under pressure, I think you freeze. Whether it's it's big pressure or tiny pressure, I think your initial response is very deer in the headlights. It's just freeze because your brain, maybe this is stereotyping, maybe it's just the people I know, but I feel like that ADHD brain where you go, action, it's like all 32 billion thoughts you had in your head at the same time try to like do something at once and it just feels like i don't know like you wrenched your neck or something and then they all just run into each other and then they're all just like ah! I don't know what's going on there but that's what i imagine but externally it just looks like nothing like you've just shut down like does not compute system overloaded done and then once that freeze happens you end up overachieving too and you just, you don't realize it. You become, like you said earlier with the morning routine, like super efficient and you get things done like nobody's business. Again, I don't know what's going on in your brain that that happens, but it's one of those things like I love, I love talking with people that are neurodivergent, like differently than me because I'm like, oh my God, that is so foreign. Like, how does that work? What is happening in your brain right now? But I, I think initially you just freeze 
And then all of a sudden you like step into go mode and you're like, oh, I'm bringing it. It, it is brought. Your perception of what is going on outwardly. Yes. I do freeze initially. That is always my first response when I'm put under pressure. As far as what's going on inside my head, I don't know if this is the same for other ADHD people, but when somebody puts me under pressure and it can be over the stupidest thing, it'd be like, what do you want for dinner? Everything that was going on inside my head, all of the voices that were saying all sorts of things in there going in different directions, everything stops. And all these like inner parts of me, we all just kind of like turn to the front and we're like, huh? And it just stays that way for a while. Like the one time my brain is completely quiet. I'm no good at being really witty. I'm, I would be horrible at improv comedy. I hate small talk because I don't know what to say unless you ask me questions and drag it out of me. As soon as there is pressure on me, everything inside my head stops and it's like nothing ever existed there at all. So it literally feels to me like I've got an arena inside my head of all of these little versions of me who are constantly going off all the time about their own little things that they're interested in or curious about or stressing out about. But as soon as there's pressure on me, everybody just stops and turns to the front and it's like, huh? Eventually, though, what will happen is some part of me goes on autopilot and I just get shit done. And then I am super productive over a very small amount of time. Or like Autumn was saying with my morning routine and all of my, my regimens and everything, I develop a very strict regimen that then becomes muscle memory that I don't have to think about at all. Like as I'm doing my morning routine, I'm running my own inner monologue about things that have absolutely nothing to do with my morning routine. By the time I leave the house, I don't even remember how breakfast was made. I know I did it but I wasn't really paying attention. It was all muscle memory at that point because I trained myself to do these things without having to think about it so that I wouldn't have to waste precious energy trying to mentally focus on the task at hand. But that's what happens after the freeze is something in my brain is like, okay, well, this thing actually legitimately has to be done. So it just goes on autopilot and it makes things happen. It's almost like all the little internal components get like stunned when the pressure happens, just absolute stunned. And then they all get a chance to think about like, okay, which internal component is actually supposed to do this? And then one of them on freezes and like, me, me, it's me, I get to do this. And then because all of them are still stunned, that little me has all the resources to do everything that needs to get done because everybody's still stunned by the initial pressure. And then everybody wakes up and then you're like, oh, we used all the resources and then you're burnt out. Yeah. I, this is what I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like that. It's exactly like that. It's no coincidence because I've been working with my therapist. I have my own internal world. It's not just I have my internal monologue of Ivy. I have distinct different parts of my personality that live inside my head. They have their own names. They all have their own appearance, the way they like to dress, their hobbies, their thought processes, their belief systems. They all have their own thing. I cannot imagine operating as a fully assimilated, just singular focused person. I cannot fathom that. I have to even in therapy, as I am working on myself and on healing, things get compartmentalized and they get fragmented over here and over there. And this, this part of me handles this better and this part of me handles that better. And when I am put under pressure, everybody stops for a minute. You know, like Autumn said, it is like somebody's being selected to figure out who's going to handle this. And while that's being handled, it's not even that the rest of them are stunned. It's like they passed the fuck out. 
like somebody roofied every other part of me. So this one part of me could take over and get the thing done. And then everybody wakes back up and we're all groggy. And yes, it's like burnout. I can't do anything for a while. And then everything goes back to like the internal chaos and madness of everybody talking over each other because they're forgetting that they're not the only thing that's in there. That's the thing that makes it frustrating and why it's so hard for me to concentrate a lot of the time is it's all of these internal parts of me are doing their own thing. And while they're doing their own thing, they are the center of their own universe. And they often forget that there are other parts of me and they all collectively forget that there is a world outside of my head that must be interacted with. And that is one of the biggest frustrations is trying to manage all of my inner parts so that I can then manage the person that I am operating in this world that everybody else seems to live in. If we were both aliens, I feel like you would be some kind of alien where it's a host of different alien entities living in a single body. Unfortunately, I think if I was an alien, I, I would sadly be be a Vogon <laughs> from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, just an absolute bureaucrat to the extreme. I hope not, but sometimes I'm afraid of that. I was actually thinking as you were talking about being a host to multiple things, it's like there's this part of me that's like, man, it would be great if those multiple things could operate as a hive mind and just be all on the same fucking page. Imagine all the things that I could do if they were all on the same page. But then the other part of my brain says, you would hate that. <laughs> you would absolutely hate being a hive mind. There is a part of me that really likes having all these different internal parts of me. And I, I do, to a certain degree, like this internal chaos because a lot of my belief systems and the way that I operate and my value systems, all of that has stemmed from the fact that there are these multifaceted parts. It feels anyway, like there are these multifaceted parts within me as a person. And it's the collective of all of those multifaceted personas within me that create who I am collectively. And I actually kind of like myself. I go into all social interactions, assuming other people will hate me, but I like me. Like I like the person that I have become. I like how open-minded I am. I, I like how internally versatile and adaptable I am. And I don't think I would be that if I didn't have all of these different parts of me with their own perceptions and identities and interests, I don't feel like I would be the same person. Like as much as it would make it super convenient if I could just operate as a hive mind, I think I would hate that. I don't really want to be alone in my own head. I kind of like that I have company in there. I laugh a little bit because as soon as you initially said hive mind, I'm like, oh, I feel kind of like a hive mind. And then you're like, I don't think I would like that at all. <laughs> okay though because it's as much as i admire like your collective unity i would be horrified to have to deal with that on a daily basis i i don't know maybe it's just because i'm 40 and i've dealt with this for so long and i know how to deal with it i enjoy the aspects of my neurodiversions i enjoy the perks of the hive mind and the way we work together and the communal objectives and everything and i would not i don't think i'd enjoy your collective but i do enjoy interfacing with it. I enjoy learning about it because it is so foreign to me. And that is part of what makes it so interesting. I feel like in and of myself, I'm a very closed loop. And so when I see somebody so uniquely different from me, 
I'm very much drawn to that because I'm like, oh, this is something new. This is something different. I can learn so much from it. And even more importantly than that, you have so many strengths that are my weaknesses and so many weaknesses that are my strengths, which for me makes an awesome relationship because one, I get to continue to be really shitty at things I didn't want to put effort into and you're going to pick up slack, which is amazing. And two, to compensate for the fact that you're kind of carrying my dead weight ass on these, I'm really awesome at stuff that you suck at, which means I don't feel guilty that you're carrying my dead weight half the time because I'm carrying the other half of your dead weight. And so it works out. I feel like it's a great relationship to have. I think so too. I, and you know, this is actually one of the things that I love about the neurodivergent community is that I think a lot of us operate that way where we complement each other and also we're, we are more open-minded because we know we operate differently. And so we are fascinated by the way that other people operate and we're fascinated and curious about it from a space of, of genuine curiosity and genuine care. Like we care. We, we want to know who you are as a person. It's not just the, the dry bones of how your brain operates, but it's like, okay, okay. So your brain operates like that. And then how does that affect you as like a person with your own backgrounds and your own life experiences? One of the things that I love most about the neurodivergent community is that we all kind of enjoy being tourists in each other's psyches. And it's not coming from a space of judgment. It is coming from a space of compassion. It's coming from a space of kinship. And it's coming from a space of genuine curiosity and fascination because we value differences we don't see that as something that's bad. We don't feel personally threatened by other people being different than us. We are genuinely interested in how people are different and what that means for each person as an individual. And I find that a really beautiful thing about the neurodivergent community. And with even with all of the struggles that come with being neurodivergent, I would not give that up for anything because I really, truly believe that being neurodivergent and being part of this neurodivergent tribe, even if we don't know each other directly, it's such a gift. And in today's day and age now, where we're finally starting to see more acceptance of people who operate differently, we get to have more of a sense of community than any other generation before us. Like I think about our mom and I think about our grandma and I wonder how different their lives could have been if they could have found other people like them that they could have related to and they could have seen the things that made them different as being strengths and as being something beautiful and as being something that other people genuinely wanted to encourage and genuinely wanted to see. One of the best things about being part of the neurodivergent community is feeling like we're actually seen by each other, really seen. And I would say not only just seen, but actively celebrated because I feel like part of this tourism also is just a little bit of childlike glee. We are just like, oh, look at that thing. Oh my God, it's so sparkly. What does it do? Even those of us that are more laid back, I do feel like there is this almost intense glee and happiness and celebration of the difference that goes with it. And so, yes, I, I love being part of this neurodivergent community now 
But for today, we are going to go ahead and wrap up. Ivy, if you want to throw them all of our connecty bits, if you could, please. You may want to unmute your microphone while providing the connecty bits so that they could hear. Damn, I had been doing so well on that too. You can find us at www.differentfunctional.com. You can find us on Facebook as Different Functional. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. You could email us at differentfunctional at gmail.com. You could leave us a rating and a review. That would be fantastic. You could drop us a comment or a DM on any of the socials. We would love to hear from you guys. And we would especially love to hear from you guys about this episode. Did you relate to these things? Are there ways in which your autism or ADHD manifests differently? Are there things that you want to tell us about your own version of neurodivergence if we didn't cover it today, since we did only talk about ADHD and autism? Is there anything that you want to tell us about your life experiences and how your neurodivergence impacts you on a day-to-day -day basis? It could be a struggle. It could be a triumph. It could be just a funny thing about what makes you unique. We would really love to hear from you guys. Yes, reach out to us. And, and especially also if you're odd HD, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I've just seen it written on the TikTok, but you've got the autism and the ADHD. Did you relate to this like from both of us? Did one sound like more resonating than the other? Because I'd be kind of curious if you feel like, yeah, I'm definitely on both these spectrums, what, what your experiences are. But for today, we will go ahead and wrap up. And we thank you for listening. As always, remember, different does not mean defective. My